The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. She was by any measure one of the most influential political philosophers of the 20th century. And she's a rare intellectual whose life, both public and personal, is as compelling as her works. Her name was Hannah Arendt. And we'll talk to her biographer, Samantha Rose Hill, today on The History of Literature. Hello, 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 everyone. Welcome to the podcast. We are closing in on summer, aren't we? Well, what do you have planned, dear listener? Drop me a line and let me know. Let me know your vacation plans and what books you're planning to take with you. Or maybe you have some other literary endeavor in mind. I hope they all go well. We have a great show today, Samantha Rose Hill, a brilliant young scholar whose subject, Hannah Arendt, is a fascinating one. I was the student of one of Hannah Arendt's primary students back in the day, and her aura was still present 15 years after her death. She cast a large shadow, or maybe shadow's the wrong word to use. Her comet left a wide trail. How about that? Her mind and its fertile ideas and the force of her personality left their imprint on the culture, both within the intelligentsia and beyond. So, here's what we'll do. I'll give you a brief thumbnail sketch of Hannah Arendt. Then we will hear from the expert, Samantha Rose Hill. And finally... We'll hear from television producer and Ye Gods podcast host and Oscar Wilde specialist, Scott Carter. We've talked to Scott about Dickens, Tolstoy, Thomas Jefferson, the Gospels, Oscar Wilde, Dylan Thomas, and Tom Stoppard. I might be forgetting a few authors along the way. Well, today he's here to tell us about the book that he would like to be the last one he ever reads. And guess what? It's not by any of the authors I just mentioned, so stick around for that. Hannah Arendt was born into a German-Jewish family in 1906. In 1933, she fled Germany and lived for eight years in Paris, working for Jewish refugee organizations. Finally, she moved to the United States, where she lived the remaining 34 years of her life, mostly in New York City, where she was active in intellectual circles, and she lived around the country, too, doing stints at various universities. She also famously wrote for The New Yorker, including a transformative article about the trial of Adolf Eichmann, which attempted to explain how ordinary people can do awful things in a totalitarian regime, and which introduced the phrase, the banality of evil, into our lexicon. She had long been a leading political philosopher, a documenter, and deep-root explainer of our times, thanks to her works, The Origins of Totalitarianism, and The Human Condition, among others. Since her death in 1975, her life has become the subject of much inquiry and speculation, including what my guest today calls the question, or maybe she says it's the Heidegger question, which, boiled down, is this. Hannah Arendt was Jewish, openly and proudly, and very self-aware of her identification and her cultural heritage and the peril in which that placed her. As a student... She had a four-year affair with one of her professors, the philosopher Martin Heidegger. Heidegger was a Nazi supporter. She wrote to him in 1932, asking him to deny it, and he did not, because it was true. And yet, Arendt did not denounce him or cut him off. She maintained a friendship and what one writer has called a quasi-romance with Heidegger even after the war. Their correspondence was unsealed in 1995, and the world's fascination with this brilliant mind and her intellectual and romantic passions continued. Hannah Arendt was an engaged thinker, a strong advocate, and a groundbreaking philosopher of 20th century concerns. Freedom, power, action and judgment, the state, citizenship, and collective identity. We will talk to an expert in Hannah Arendt, Samantha Rose Hill, after this. 
Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, joining me now is Samantha Rose Hill, who is the author of forthcoming books on Hannah Arendt's poems to be published later this year by Live Right, and a book on loneliness that she's writing for Yale University Press. She's here today to discuss her book, Hannah Arendt, from Reaction Books for their Critical Lives series. Samantha Rose Hill, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be talking with you. So when did your interest in Hannah Arendt begin? Do you remember when and how that happened? Oh, goodness. Yes, I do. And it's hard to believe it was more than 20 years ago now. Mm. I was in the library looking for Eric Fromm's Marxist concept of man, and I stumbled across the human condition. And I took it off the shelf, and I opened it up, and I fell in love with Hannah Arendt's writing, it was unlike any other text of political philosophy I had encountered up to that point. It was moving and beautiful and poetic, and I was completely ensnared by her language. And I was very aware that I did not understand anything she was talking about. (laughs) Uh, And I, I really wanted to understand, though. So I ended up taking nine directed studies in college and reading pretty much nothing but Hannah Arendt and her antecedents. Wow. Okay. So you were looking for Eric Fromm and you you were in college? Yes, I was in college. Yeah. Were you like a political philosophy major or? I was. I was a political philosophy major. I have degrees in political science, uh, but always with a focus on political philosophy. And I had been... You know, when I was, I think, around 11, 12 years old, my mom would just hand me a $20 bill and drop me off in front of the Barnes and Nobles, which was the only bookstore in the town where I grew up in Michigan. And, you know, the first time I came out with a compilation of Nietzsche's work, (laughs) and she just kind of rolled her eyes at me. And... I really love the birth of tragedy. Mm. I, I Now I'm aware I didn't understand what that was about at the time either. But I was completely, you know, I fell in love with Nietzsche at a very young age. And then Freud and then Marx in high school. And then those interests just continued into college, which led me to the library looking for Eric Fromm. Right. So what do you think was appealing to you about those authors at that age? Oh, well, you know, I am a first-generation college graduate mm. who grew up in a very working-class family uh, in Port Huron, and my mom was a waitress, and my dad worked at a grocery store, and I was bookish from a very young age. It had started, the the real reading obsessions had started a few years earlier with Tennessee Williams and Shakespeare, and I was really drawn to work that resonated with me, but also felt like they opened up the world Mm. to me in Mm -hmm. a way that expanded the reality I was living in at the time, Mm -hmm. because I always had the feeling that there was this enormous universe out there. But when you grow up in the kind of 
you know, place where I grew up, it doesn't always feel like that on a day-to-day basis. And so books, as they do for many people, really were what enabled me to imagine another life for myself. And was that other life that you thought you could be an author like those people or that you wanted to think bigger thoughts than what was available to you in your childhood? You know, I wouldn't let myself think of myself as a writer for Mm -hmm. a very long time. Mm -hmm. I didn't think that that was a valid profession to have for somebody like me who came from my class background because when my parents sent me to college, which they always insisted I go to college because nobody nobody had, but they could see that I was, you know, really interested in it would suit you. <laughs> the books as, <laughs> as, as they as they said, book book smarts as they would say. Um <laughs> you know, it was expected that I would study politics and economics and go to law school mm-hmm. or medical school or something that was a legitimate profession that would earn me money to help me kind of move up that ladder of the American dream. And it wasn't until actually recently during the pandemic that I discovered a letter I wrote to my grandmother uh, my senior year of high school where I told her that I wasn't allowed to take any more political science classes. And so I was taking classes in the English department and in creative writing. And that if I was being honest with myself, what I really wanted to do was write, but I couldn't politically justify it to myself. Mm. And and I, there was a quote in there that I sent her from Toni Morrison, where she says that all writing is political. And thinking at the time that, well, okay, if I am going to write for a living, then maybe that's how I begin to justify it in my own thinking. But it took me a really long time to get there. And my parents would, you know, say, when are you going to get a real job? Even when I was a college professor, because it wasn't quite, it wasn't visible as a form of legitimate work in a way. It is now, which I'm happy to say. My parents are very proud of me, but (laughs) it took a long time. It took a really long time to be able to, to imagine that life for myself. So I think staying in the, the world of literature and political philosophy and history was always the lifeline that kept me going and is why kept getting up in the morning. Yeah. I think your story, actually, I could keep going with, but I wanted to pivot to Hannah Arendt. So I wanted to ask, when you started reading about Hannah Arendt, you must have looked at her childhood and thought how different it was from the one that you had had. Yes. It took me a long time to dig into the life of Hannah Arendt because Mm -hmm. I was taught in school that you don't confuse the political thought of a thinker with their life story. Right. And I always had trouble with that because, you know, as Arendt says so eloquently, all thinking moves from experience. And I always really craved to understand the experiences that were shaping the intellectual interests and curiosities and questions of, of the people's work that I found interesting. And so when I read Elizabeth Young Brule's 1982 biography for The Love of the World, which remains the definitive biography. It's like a thousand pages long. She wrote it before a lot of the archives were open and materials were available, but she actually had access to Arendt. So I was really fascinated by not so much her childhood, but by the sheer force of will that was present on the pages. Mm, Right. Just the confidence and the desire to uh, explore these things that maybe weren't being explored? Just the, she escaped near death several times throughout her life. I mean, that was fascinating to me. Until I started writing the biography, I didn't actually understand what she had personally gone through mm. in those eight and a half years in exile after she was forced to flee after being arrested by the Gestapo in 33 and arriving in New York City in 1941. And that's a remarkable story. But she was so, she was tenacious and independent from a very early age. And I think that 
spirit resonated with me at a personal level, you know, that she rather just be absorbed in the books than going to classes and enduring her teachers, which she couldn't stand. But she, how do I put it? She has this hunger. She has that ineffable hunger for life and desire to really experience life in the world. And nothing was going to stop her from doing that. Mm. And that is palpable in her biographies, in her writing, in her sense of humor, in her friendships, in her love affairs. She had this remarkable passion. And you know, I often have asked myself whether or not you can teach that or whether or not that's something that you have or you don't have. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure, but. She, I think it's, I think it's what kept her alive. Mm, right. Okay. Let's talk about one of her more famous affairs, uh, the one with her mentor, Martin Heidegger. So this is now she's in her, she's still in her teens, really, when they met, right? And she's coming off of this precocious childhood, but she's at university now, and she is, I guess, 18 when they met, and he was 35 and married. And, 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 and. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> and then I can understand kind of this four-year affair, but then the fact that she was Jewish and he later became a prominent Nazi, and, and then they were friends years later. And How did she reconcile that in her mind? Yeah, yeah. I I don't, you know, I don't. Well, so I'll say a couple of things. I call this the Heidegger question. It always comes up. Yeah. And it, it's really the question of, you know, how does this stunningly brilliant Jewish political thinker end up having a romantic affair before and after the war mm-hmm. with Martin Heidegger, who yeah. joins the Nazi party and now posthumously we know was an anti-Semite over the course of his life through the black notebooks you know how does this happen i i i do not have an answer um Mm. because i don't know what was going on in her head i often joke about having an aren't magic eight ball when people (laughs) ask me to to say (laughs) to say what's what's happening because i i can't speak for that but i can say what exists on paper Mm -hmm. in her writing and in the archive aren't passionately loved him mm. you know jerry Cohn, arendt's literary executor told me a story once and i don't know if it's true but i think it illustrates something which is that on her desk at 370 riverside drive in one corner she had a picture of heidegger and in the other corner she had a picture of her husband heinrich Blucher. Mm. you know heidegger was the electric passionate love that made her want to write poems and Blucher was her home Mm. what allowed her to feel grounded in the world he was her intellectual companion that she would think through ideas and with and debate with and built life with and in her work Arendt offers a concept of reconciliation as a kind of formal philosophical concept that's different from forgiveness. Forgiveness, she says, is something that you give to another person, not for yourself, but for them so that they can go on living in their life and not be bound to one thing that they've done Mm. that's caused harm in some way. But reconciliation is a bit different and reconciling oneself to the actions of another person person means not conflating the core of who they are as a person with an act or series of acts that that person engages in. That a person is not the sum total of an act or a set of acts. Mm. And that to see a person means to be able to see them in all of their vicissitudes, multitudes, and to hold them in equal measure, which doesn't mean accepting, and it doesn't mean granting permission or 
being okay with. It just means that one can, in a way, I think we might say, look past. Yeah. And maybe, maybe to, to see it as almost a form of control in a, in some way to say, I'm not going to let you take yourself out of my equation. This is going to be something that I will decide or I will choose. And, and I will, my consideration of you is going to be valid for me. I like that. I hadn't thought to put it in those words, but I think part of that rings true in thinking about Arendt and Heidegger and especially their reunion after the war and the role that he played in her life intellectually Mm. from the time she was very young until her death. Yeah. Okay. So what kind of young woman do we see in her early works? Uh, She, I I haven't read any of this, her poetry, there's an autobiographical piece, a dissertation on the concept of love and the thought of St. Augustine. What, what was interesting her intellectually and how did she view herself as a person, I guess? What did she want from life? There's a lot of angst in the mm. early poems and the shadows, the autobiographical piece that you mentioned, which she wrote uh, for Martin Heidegger and sent to him in the summer of 1925, shortly before she broke up with him. And she is wondering what is going to become of her life. You know, she was a student of theology and philosophy, which was quite common at the time. Uh, But in a lot of those early writings, like the work on Augustine, we see her wrestling with trying to find a secular conception of love that can help us to think about how we are in the world with others Mm. and what that means and what ethical responsibilities, responsibilities to one another that carries And she finds that in Augustine's concept of caritas. In her poems, we see her wrestling very uncharacteristically of her published works with the concept of God at all, Mm. echoing Genesis and Deuteronomy, asking why God can't hear us, wondering if God is still watching over his creation, wondering if God is there at all. And I read that she sort of always viewed herself as different and an outsider. Yes. From a very early age, she understood herself to be different. At first, that was a result of being made aware of the fact that she was Jewish Mm. by her German classmates. She was the target of some anti-Semitic bullying when she was quite young, the School children on the playground told her that she was responsible for the death of Christ. And she went home and told her mother what they had said. And she said, you know, this is what this is. And when you're attacked as a Jew, you have to defend yourself as a Jew. And she really accepted that teaching of her mother's. And in 1933, when she fled, she reiterated it and said she would only do Jewish work to Mm. help her people. And she became a Zionist in the European sense, not the contemporary sense of Zionism, but worked for organizations like Youth Aliyah helping Jewish youth escape Europe to Palestine and working for a number of Jewish organizations that stayed with her throughout her life. And later, after the publication of Adolf Eichmann and Jerusalem, a report on the banality of evil in 1963, which turned 60 this year, she was cast out of society. Mm. She became a pariah. And a pariah for her is a really important idea. It appears in an early essay she wrote in 1943 titled We Refugees, and again in The Origins of Totalitarianism. And for her, a pariah is the person who is different Mm. in society, the one who's considered other. And instead of trying to assimilate, to fit in, in the adopted society, 
they hold on to their otherness with pride and carry it with them. And she was always proud to be a pariah, to be the other in that sense. In her 1964 interview with Gunter Gauss, she says, you know, I refuse to lose my German accent. Mm. Because for her, it was the language of German that remained for her, especially German poems after the war. Right. From this experience she had from 1933 to 1941, and, and even after, I mean, she was active politically. She was trained in philosophy, but but became active. And I'm wondering if you consider that a product of her era and the particular times that she lived through kind of called her into action? Or do you think that was part of her nature and disposition that she would have been fighting injustice and being uh, a person living in the world no matter when she was born? It's a really interesting question. And she was forced to turn to politics in many ways. Mm -hmm. She became a writer by accident because writing for her was the way to try to understand what was happening around her. And she had a very promising career in German academia when she was captured by the Gestapo for doing research in the Prussian State Library on behalf of the World Zionist Organization. She was at work on her Habilitation, the second book mm. you need in Germany to secure a teaching position, which would become the Rahel Varnhagen book. But she had been trained by Martin Heidegger, Edmund Husserl, and Karl Jaspers, right. three, the two German <laughs> fathers of existentialism, and the great phenomenologist Husserl. I mean, she had this brilliant education, and she, according to their letters of recommendation, which I have in my desk somewhere for her, uh, you know, she was by far the star pupil in a pretty remarkable set of courses. So I don't know if she would have become so politically active had the conditions of the 20th century not so radically shaped the course of her life. Mm. I don't think I can say that definitively. I do think that she became politicized much earlier than many of her friends and colleagues around her. She was worried about what was happening in Germany in 1929, uh, led to a bit of a fight uh, between her and Strauss, also in the Prussian State Library. And she was very attuned to the political environment around her. And she said after the burning of the Reichstag that she could no longer be a bystander, mm. that she had to act. And that's it. She put away the academic career. And she said, I will only do work for my people. And she was. She was incredibly politically active. When her first husband, Gunther Anders, was forced to flee Berlin after Bertolt Brecht's address book was confiscated by the Gestapo, and they started arresting communists, Arendt stayed in Berlin and turned her apartment into a stop to help the communists flee through Czechoslovakia to Switzerland, to Paris. And she was remarkably brave. Mm. So then she comes to America. How did early 1940s America differ from Europe with respect to these uh, political and social conditions? It, well, in a number of ways. I think one of my favorite passages from that time, when after she arrives, she says, here all loss is swept under the rug. Mm. And... <laughs> That always felt resonant to me in thinking about the differences in the way people think about what's being lost and mm. lost. Arndt was a fan of the American Republic. She was really taken by Montesquieu's conception of the separation of powers, which manifests in our own constitution as the House, the judiciary, and the executive, the three branches of government. Mm -hmm. And so she was also fascinated by what she called the mythology of the American melting pot. Mm. She says that it's not real. Actually, what makes America so interesting as a country is that you have all of these neighborhoods 
where different ethnic groups live and they speak their own language and yet they're all living together and you can go between them. And so she thought that kind of pariah existence and exile or immigration was possible in the United States. She also didn't think that the United States was an ethno nation state Mm. like Europe had been and following Tocqueville saw that there was a different kind of social possibility here that the class system had not been built into the fundamental structure of the country. Mm-hmm. Something we'd surely argue with today. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or I would at least that she reflects on in the 1940s. So let's take a quick break and then we'll move to the actual works. I want to walk through some of the major works with you. Okay. Sounds good. Okay, we're back with Samantha Rose Hill, expert in the life and works of Hannah Arendt. Samantha, before we get to the actual works, I was wondering if there's anything that you would say about her thinking as a whole. Are there common themes in the things that she's developing and and exploring? Or would you say that we should look at the works on an individual basis? Jein, the good German word that means yes and no. You know, so there's no red thread that runs throughout Hannah Arendt's work tying it all together. There are various themes that consistently reappear across the body of her work. Thinking is very important Mm. to Arendt's work, which I outline in the introduction to the biography I wrote. She comes back to the question of thinking and what it means to think and forms of thinking throughout her career. She has probably become most well-known for coining the concept of natality, Mm. which she takes from Augustine, which is the idea that every action sets something new into motion And everyone who is different from everyone else has the ability to act. And that means that the world can always be different than it is. Mm. For her, natality became the principle of what it meant to act in order to possibly create spaces of freedom. Mm. She returns to language I would say language is probably the most important thing to be attuned to when you're reading Hannah Arendt. She's very tricky with language. She's constantly changing voices, shifting tones. She's very sardonic. And it can be easy to miss that on the page if you're taking everything at face value. She requires a bit of reading between the lines, as it were. Hmm. So, Origins of Totalitarianism, 1951, where does that fit in her overall corpus? That's the one that kind of made her famous, right? Well, it depends what you mean by famous. So, Hmm. you know, when Arendt died in 1975, she was most well known for the book on Adolf Eichmann Mm -hmm. and the concept of the banality of evil. Which had appeared in The New Yorker and was very controversial. Yes, appeared in The New Yorker in February of 1963 and then was published as a book uh, later that summer and was extremely controversial. But when The Origins of Totalitarianism was published in 1951, that's really what set her academic career and career as a public intellectual into motion Mm. in the United States. Mm -hmm. And she was offered a series of assistant professor positions and adjunct positions at places like Princeton and Yale and Berkeley and Wesleyan and the University of Chicago to teach courses on political philosophy, European history, and the book, The Origins of Totalitarianism. 
And it has become famous posthumously because in 2015, when Donald Trump is elected president of the United States, becomes the number one bestseller. Mm, It's selling 80-fold. I I think the publisher told me something wild. Um, And everybody went out and bought a copy of The Origins of Totalitarianism to try to understand the rise of right-wing populism in the United States and around the world. And the thing about Origins is that it's, I think, 576 pages. And it's really three books in one, Mm. a history Mm -hmm. of anti-Semitism, a history of imperialism and colonialism. And the coining of the concept, which was new at the time, of totalitarianism as a radically new form of evil that had appeared in the world with Hitlerism and Stalinism. And so it's an incredibly intricate and complex work. It's not a work of history. She's not offering an account of events that led to the emergence of totalitarianism, but she's talking about the various elements of totalitarianism that crystallized together in the phenomenal appearance of Hitlerism and Stalinism in the 20th century. Is she focused on the leadership and how they are able to gain power or on the minds of the people and why they go along with this and why some of them may desire it? Both. So she talks about how totalitarianism is a radically new form of government because it relied upon several elements, the creation of superfluous masses, people who were deprived of their citizenship and left homeless and stateless Mm. in the world who could be instrumentalized by the state for political gain, the use of absolute terror in order to control populations, and the invention of death camps, which operated to disappear people from the world altogether as she puts it into holes of oblivion. And so those are the defining elements of totalitarianism and what separated those practices from other previous forms of fascism or authoritarianism or dictatorship. And it's defined by this endless hunger for power after power. It's all-reaching and all-expansive. In 1958, she adds a new conclusion to the origins of totalitarianism in a chapter titled Ideology and Terror. And in that section, which is a really great section of the book, she focuses more specifically on what made people vulnerable to the ideological propaganda of Hitlerism and Stalinism and what Goebbels and others were doing the propaganda minister for Hitler. And she talks about what makes ideologies appealing to the masses. And the initial conclusion to Origins, before that one was added, she had ended on the note that as long as there is economic and political and social suffering in the world, totalitarianism will always be a threat Mm -hmm. because it will always be appealing. And so for her, an ideology is any word, she says, that ends with an ism. And it is a way of offering a simple solution to a complex set of social, political, and economic problems. And so the ideology tells people, I see your suffering. I see the way that you feel. Let me be your voice. Mm. These are the people to blame for your condition in society. So we'll take care of them and then you'll be okay. And this is what true reality looks like. And so it teaches people that there's a true reality beyond the reality that we live in, which promises a better future. Mm. And while solving the political economic and social problems that exist in the society. Okay. And also in 1958, she wrote The Human Condition. Does this advance those ideas or is she turning to something else? 
I often think of the human condition as the opposite side of the coin. Mm-hmm. I think you can say of origins of totalitarianism. So if the origins of totalitarianism is about the phenomenal appearance of totalitarianism and the loss of movement and freedom in the world, then the human condition is a book about the fundamental human activities of life and how we might protect spaces of freedom to save freedom in modernity. Mm. But she's not hopeful that that can happen because of what she says she calls the rise of the social. And we can hear that word social as privatization would be the word we might use today or economization. And that argument does pick up on an argument in origins about the privatization of the nation state where all businessmen become politicians and politicians become businessmen. But in the human condition, she talks about the intersections between technology, labor work, political action, and spaces of appearance where we actually appear in the world with one another. And she argues that everybody has been transformed into a laborer who produces nothing more than objects that have a commodity value in our contemporary society, which is fundamentally dehumanizing because we no longer create things that can add to the lasting artifice of the world. Instead of being motivated to engage in great deeds or acts to be remembered, we are more interested in the preservation of our life here and now. And technology and science, she argues, are being put in the service of the preservation of life instead of the advancement of humanity. Hmm. So when you say it's kind of the other side of the coin, are you saying that it's in Origins of Totalitarianism, she's kind of saying, here are the conditions that that we need to watch out for in order to remain politically free. And in this book, she's sort of saying, even if you get that right, <laughs> there could still be a way of of kind of defeating the self or defeating the best version of oneself that that we can inadvertently end up with limits on people because of the relationship they're going to have with with capitalism or with labor and and what we're requiring of them? Kind of. So in Origins, she's talking about the appearance of totalitarianism and the various elements that crystallize to make that possible. So one element of that is what she calls the political emancipation of the bourgeoisie where she talks about the privatization of the state, where the state was overtaken by businessmen who wanted to engage in imperial and colonial ventures in order to expand their industries. But in order to do that, they needed the backing of the state and the military to invade foreign countries and expropriate their resources. And so they uh, took over positions of power within the government in order to do that. And for Arendt, that is the collapse of the distinction between the private realm, uh, which is the realm of economy, and the public realm, which is the realm of political affairs. And so in the human condition, she picks up on that thread mm. to talk about the, his, the ways in which we thought about private life and public life and intimacy and labor and work historically. And so one way to read that would be to think about it in terms of where do you see the distinction between your private life and your public life collapsing? Because for Arendt, that's a sign that, you know, totalitarianism is a big word to use there, but that I would put it as, you know, we're losing part of our humanity. Mm. Because in order to be fully human, we need a private life away from the realm of public appearances. And we also need to be able to appear in public and be recognized and seen and heard by other people. And it's not a hard distinction, it's a porous one. And as she says, every aspect of human life is touched by politics. 
but that distinction still the idea that you can walk out your front door and appear in the world and then walk back into your front door and disappear from the world is important. And so there's a physical component of space that gives an architecture to the human condition and a vocabulary for thinking about the differences between the different kinds of spaces we inhabit and activities we engage in. And for Arendt, the important thing there for preserving freedom is the difference that we should be able to distinguish between the different spaces we inhabit and activities we engage in. But her fear is that all of the activities and spaces have basically become part of what she calls the waste economy, where people are are endlessly engaged in processes of consumption and production without actually adding anything the world. Is it that they no longer know who they are when the front door closes and they're inside? They've internalized this feeling of what others want them to be or what the system is creating in them? Or No, no. It's just having a private life. Yeah. You need to have a private life. Right. Like you go home, you close the door, you put on your sweats, you make yourself a cup of tea, you relax, you're no longer performing. The word person comes from the word persona, which literally means to wear a mask, to appear in the world before others. We're always performing. Yeah. And when you go home, you have a space of privacy where you can just be. And for her, that is fundamentally essential for thinking. If you do not have that space of privacy where you can be alone with yourself, where you can have solitude, you cannot think. Your ability to think is fundamentally compromise. And when you think about our contemporary world, that distinction has all but been lost yeah. with technology, which is precisely what she was afraid of. I guess what I'm wondering is, was she worried that people were going to be observed in their homes or there would be an interference with the privacy of it in a physical sense? Or was she worried that people were just going to lose the kind of understanding of I have some boundaries and I can be a different person when I'm at home. So on the one hand, yeah, she did not think that what goes on in the private realm should be subject to state surveillance. She did not think that people's private lives should be subject to any kind of um, regulation or administration. So that she writes about in different places. But On the other hand, it very much has to do with our ability to engage in thinking, Mm. which for her Mm -hmm. is the two-in-one dialogue that I have with myself, which is only possible in a space of solitude where I'm alone with myself, which requires privacy so that I can retreat from the world of appearances and engage in thinking. Because it's there when I'm alone by myself that I can tell a story to myself about the experiences I've had, which give meaning to my life. And I can think about various things that are possible or not possible. It's a space where the self-consciousness, the I, can engage in a conversation with the conscience, the moral self, which is what allows us to judge and act in the world. It's a space of personal responsibility that allows us to hold ourselves accountable for what it is that we're doing. Because in order to think, we have to stop doing. And when you have that space of privacy and solitude, you're no longer acting in the world before others, but you're alone with the self, where the self can hold the self accountable. Okay, so Eichmann in Jerusalem, 1963, She went to the Eichmann trial, and was that sort of a place where she was applying to a a current event some of the theories that she had developed in her earlier works? Oh, no. I never won much for application. She's very much against the formation of any kind of Procrustean frame that might delimit Mm. what it means to experience the world in the now. Mm -hmm. She says the only tense is the present tense the now. And so I think I think she would be allergic to that. Mm-hmm. But she does rethink 
the conclusion of Origins, where mm. she talks about how totalitarianism had been a form of radical evil in the world. And she coins the concept of the banality of evil after the first day of the trial she writes a letter to her husband and says the whole damn thing is banal you know she went she went to jerusalem expecting to stand face to face with a monster yeah the fact that eichmann was an anti-semite she took for granted of course Mm -hmm. but she wanted to understand what else what were his crimes what had he done What had motivated him to act in the way that he did? And instead of being confronted with a trial of a perpetrator, she was completely disillusioned by the court. And she was met with the reality that standing face to face with evil ultimately means just standing face to face with another human being. Mm. And it's not monsters who commit evil acts in this world, it's people. And she didn't mean banal in the ordinary sense that we use banal, but she meant it in the sense that Eichmann lacked the ability to imagine the world from the perspective of another. Mm. He lacked a kind of fundamental human empathy that would have allowed him to hold himself accountable in a way that took into consideration the welfare of other people. Mm-hmm. So rather than him having a kind of superpower of evil, as we might have ascribed to some kind of supervillain, instead it was he yeah. was dull and limited. Yes. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And how was that received? Uh, I mean, I know it provoked some controversy. I'm I'm wondering, uh, did she accept any of the criticism or did she view it as misplaced? No, 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 no. So I know I know you asked the question knowing um, knowing part of the answer. Um, (laughs) Hence my laughter. But, you know, that that when Arendt published that text in The New Yorker, it set the New York social scene on fire and quite a ruckus in the international Jewish community. Gershom Sholem, who she had known for quite a long time, although never really liked, told her that she had no Ahavah Israel, no love of her people. Mm. And she said, you're right. I don't love a people. I love my friends. I love my husband. Um, no, no. You know, and so she, when the book is published, there's essentially a trial held at the Hotel Diplomat in downtown Manhattan, where over a hundred people got up to a podium and criticized the work, arguing that she had blamed the Jewish people for the Holocaust, that she had been too sympathetic to Hitler, and so on. And, And none of that was true. None of that is in the book. And so she was fascinated by how what she had written had become political fodder for what she called the establishment in the state in the letter to Mary McCarthy and was used rhetorically against her. But nobody actually read the book. Mm. It was all just the secondhand hearsay about what people thought she had written in the book. But the biggest point of contention, which she does not refute but acknowledges, is the tone. Mm. She wrote the book in a sardonic tone. Mm. And Sholem, among others, told her it was inappropriate. And she said to Gunter Gauss in 64, I can't do anything about that. That's who I am. And for Arnett, the ability to find humor, to embrace irony, to be able to laugh at the horror of what she had experienced and what she had witnessed and what happened was essential for her for retaining her own sense of self-sovereignty. She says laughter is a way to retain one's sense of self-sovereignty. It was a way for her to retain her sense of dignity in the face of people who wanted to deny her that dignity. It was a way to create distance between herself and the seriousness of what she was dealing with. And she would often cite 
Bert told Brecht, who said that comedy was a much better form than tragedy to deal with serious matters. Hmm. She's so formidable as a thinker, and so uh, <laughs> she's so intelligent. Do you see another side of her in her poetry? I know you have the book coming out of of her poetry. Does she seem vulnerable in her poetry, or or does she express a, a kind of uh, a different side to her, or do you kind of see the same person that you see in her essays? No, and I think the collection will be interesting to readers in part because you see a different side mm. of art. You see the intense vulnerability. You see the longing. Um, you see the play and ideas. Mm -hmm. You see her womanliness. And you get a sense of the inner emotional life of Hannah Arendt, which she eschewed from her public writing. I mean, this is a political thinker who in part has become known for castigating the emotions from public life. And here we see them on the page. And I think it's incredibly beautiful. The poems vary from the time she starts writing them until after the war, the last one's written in 63 actually. Mm. And the first ones are very much kind of written in the spirit of German romanticism. And then there's a 16-year break in the poems. And the first poem that appears again after the war starts is from 1941. And it's dated WB for Walter Benjamin, which she mm. wrote after she went to find his, his grave in Port Beau. And so you'll also get a sense of how she process some you know very personal losses in her life and also what it was like for her to return to germany after the war okay we will look forward to that the book is called hannah arendt another in the outstanding critical live series by reaction books the forthcoming book will be on hannah arendt's poetry samantha rose hill thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature thank you so much for having me and for the wonderful questions And finally today, we hear from our friend Scott Carter, who sets aside his busy duties as a playwright, television producer, and Ye Gods podcast host to tell us about the last book he would like to read. Okay, we are here with Scott Carter, playwright and television producer, to discuss a special bonus question that gets at some things. Well, I don't want to be too presumptuous here, but I feel like your interests as a reader and a thinker about things on this world and beyond make you well-equipped for this question. I can't wait to hear your answer. So, Scott Carter, thank you for joining me for this special bonus question. It's my delight to be here, and uh, and I feel like I have entered a new uh, level of acceptance on yeah. the history of literature that I <laughs> that I get now bonus questions. Okay, well, this question comes from a listener. It was, "What do you want your last book to be?" This is the last book you will ever read. You can choose one already published or describe one that has not yet been written. Well, Jack, I have I have one of each. Okay. And so my, my one that has been published is Finnegan's Wake. Oh, okay. Because, because I, as a very young student, read Dubliners, mm -hmm. and then later, a few years later, read Portrait of the Artist. I never thought I would get through Ulysses. Mm -hmm. But thanks to a global pandemic, yeah. I was able to devote the needed time, and I took an online course with, that was only being offered online because there was a pandemic. Usually it was in person. I would not have been able to do it otherwise. And it was when my brother had called me and said, this is going to be online. It'll be six weeks, three hours each. Do you want to do it? Total of 18 hours. There are 18 episodes in Ulysses. And anyone, I think, can get through episode one of Ulysses mm -hmm. and chapter two. 
no one can get through chapter three without someone holding their hand. And because of the pandemic, I had time to listen to, for instance, the unabridged 42-hour Joyce Estate-approved audiobook read by the great Irish actor Donald Donnelly. And then I had two books of annotations, plus this professor once a, a week. And I would call my brother after each of the sessions, and we'd talk about what we'd gotten out of it. Yeah. So I felt after six weeks, I had a complete grasp of Ulysses, which I never thought I would get to. And if I got through Finnegan's Wake in the same manner, I I would think I would probably be proving to myself <laughs> that I'm not as dumb as sometimes I suspect that I am. So that's a good way to go. You'd feel like you've you've ascended to the highest possible peak. There'd be no reason to read anything else. And so uh, as a last book, that makes a lot of sense. Okay, so so what's your what one is has not been written that you would put on your list? Okay, well now I'm going to take a little bit of liberties with the last book definition, which is I'm going to. This is I die, mm-hmm. and there is a heaven, mm. and I approach whoever this is who's going to be judging me, and it turns out that there is a book of life, mm. and that there is a volume with my name on it. Yeah, And that I have to sit and watch someone with uh, either a harp or a scythe, a long bearded presence uh, in robes. And I have to watch them look through this book and then I get a favorable review. Oh, so this book would be everything you've done or all of your thoughts and yeah. It's the account of my life. Yeah. And so you want the great reviewer to give you a rave five that stars you may that you may live forever right oh i have not thought of that i kind of i kind of hope that that my life goes away i i would like to get a good review for sure because i like praise but I'm a little worried. I'm kind of hoping that when this is all over, there's more erasing of the things that I've done than there is recording of them. I find myself being surprisingly comforted by a recent quote from William Shatner, who is now, I think, 91. Mm. And basically what he said, which is kind of his paraphrase of Ecclesiastes, all is vanity, 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 all is vanity, that he's saying, don't stress in life because at the end of the day, nothing matters. Yeah. And actually, I just turned 70 and I'm now kind of seeing what Shatner means. I never thought I would utter that sentence. Mm-hmm. And it's a lightning, a lightning of the load. A complete lightning of the load. Jesus talks about my burden is light. Mm. And I Somehow, often, when I think of that phrase, I will think, well, maybe for you. But <laughs> I don't. But now, I do think that there are a lot of things that I uh, that I used to sweat over, had a, a strong sense of need about getting done or whatever. And now, I'm more on the lightning. I'm jettisoning the cargo in the ship. Yeah, right. Oh, okay. Well, there we go. Two very good answers. Scott Carter, thank you for joining me on the History of Literature. It is always my pleasure, Chuck. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Samantha Rose Hill and to Scott Carter for joining me. Please do check out their books and podcast, respectively. Samantha's book is Hannah Arendt from Reaction Books and their Critical Live series. Scott's podcast, Ye Gods, can be found wherever you found this podcast. We've got some good shows in the works, so please do subscribe and tell all your pals, your lit-loving and podcast-purveying pals. You can entice them with the 500 episodes in our back catalog or with some upcoming specials, including a look at the Empress Messalina. Slut-shamed for centuries, we'll dig into the rumors with her biographer. We'll be looking at Toni Morrison's first novel, The Bluest Eye, soon, as well as The Plague by Albert Camus. The Marquis de Sade is around the corner. That sounds a little creepy. The well-lit corner, let's hope. I don't really trust that guy. We'll get into why that is with a man who wrote a book about the notorious Frenchman 
and about one of the most valuable manuscripts in the world. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. One of the most valuable documents in the world. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for... Thank you.